Well, I've talked to several of you about what we're going to do next, and uh, I've talked about doing Genesis, but I've decided to uh, put off uh, beginning the book of Genesis until the first of the year. So you who are ready to dive into Genesis, uh, I'm not. So be patient with me. <laughs> Instead, this morning we're going to uh, begin a shorter study, one that I think we can finish by Christmas, and then hopefully we'll start Genesis in the new year. Uh, turn it with, with me, if you will, to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is uh, one of the minor prophets, the prophecy written between 400 and 450 B.C. It's the last word from the Lord for 400 years until Christ appears and all the events surrounding his birth. In that sense, Malachi is ancient history. But I believe that Malachi is a book for people like us. It's a message for our times, too. For Malachi addresses people who have heard of God doing great things in the past, but now it doesn't look so great. They thought that the kingdom was going to flourish again, and they saw little beginnings of it, but now it all seems to have gone nowhere. The excitement and the miraculous wonder of God acting in history seems to have disappeared. And so, in Malachi's time, God's people kind of went through the uh, motions of worship and service, wondering where God had gone seeming to play the waiting game. You see, Malachi is a message for people just like us, for people of all the waiting periods in the history of God's saving plan, for people who have all the promises but don't yet see them happening, for people who've seen great beginnings but wait for the great endings that don't seem to be getting closer. This is a book for people who face the temptations of the waiting time. And you think of what the temptations are when you're called to wait longer than you thought. Your heart grows cold. Your faith begins to stray. Subtle compromise sneaks in. Your worship becomes meaningless ritual. And subtly, a little cynicism, unbelief, starts to creep in. Now, Malachi is for people just like us. And its relevance begins right here in the first few verses. So let's read, let me read the first five verses that we'll look at this morning. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not es Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, and yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. These verses have two great truths to teach us. The first is this. God loves us, for he chose us as his own. God loves us, for he chose us as his own. You know, there are no sweeter words in the English language than the three little words, I love you. We write songs about it, we write poems about it, we send cards with it. We never seem to tire of saying, I love you. And here in verse 2, as God begins to address his wayward, doubting, cynical people, this is where he begins. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. This is the bedrock underlying God's covenant with Israel. He loved them. And this is the origin of our salvation in Jesus. He loves us. Well, it's impossible to overstate the significance of this truth. The God who made the universe, who, who flung it into space, who holds all things in his hands, before whom tens of thousands of angels fall in perpetual worship, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God is glorious, reflected in every ounce of his creation. That God loves us. Loves us. The God who was and is and is to come loves us. But as God addresses his people through Malachi, he knows their hearts and he knows the response that lies unuttered on their lips. You see it there in verse 2? But you ask, how have you loved us? We're just like that, aren't we? No matter how long has it been since you doubted God's love. <laughs> no matter what has happened in the past, no matter how he's shown himself mighty and gracious in the past, if we don't feel his love right this minute, it must not be there. And so God talks to them. And he takes them and us back to the beginning to show how it is that he's loved us. And specifically, he says, first of all here, I have loved you in that I chose you for my own. That's his first argument recorded here in verse 3. His love is demonstrated by the fact that he chose Jacob, Israel's ancestor, and passed by Esau, Jacob's brother. In fact, God hated Esau in comparison to his love for Jacob. Now why? Why did he choose to love Jacob? There wasn't that much difference. They were brothers. They were twin brothers. They certainly hadn't done anything to distinguish themselves, yet they were still unborn in the womb when he said this. In fact, if we look ahead at the lives that they lived, we would have to admit that Esau was a lot more lovable than Jacob was. Jacob was deceitful and conniving, always playing some angle. 
Esau was the rugged, outspoken outdoorsman, his father's favorite son. So clearly Jacob was not better than Esau, even his own father would admit that. But that's just the point. The difference between God's people and the rest of the world, the difference between Jacob and Esau, is only one thing. God loves them and chooses his own. The Apostle Paul gives us a New Testament interpretation of those verses in Romans chapter uh, 9. Let me read a few verses. Romans 9, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. And yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say, then? Is God unjust? Well, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God loves us, and we know it, for he chose us as his own. Now, I know that when we begin to talk about this teaching, this doctrine, which is called election or predestination. I know that very often folks will quote that verse that says, whom he foreknew, he predestined. And they will say, see what happened? God looked down through history, through the quarters of time, and he knew in advance who was going to believe in him, and those are the ones that he chose for his own. Pretty popular idea around a lot of churches. But if I might just take a minute and tell you that that is misunderstanding what that verse is about. First of all, that's a logical impossibility, if you really think about it just for a moment. People take that position because they want to preserve our right to be the one making the decision. My right to choose. So God saw my choice, and then that became his choice, rather than God making the choice, and then that becoming my choice. But think about it. If God looked down through the quarters of time and saw in advance what you were going to choose before you were ever born, is there any possibility that you're not going to choose that when the time comes? If God already knew it in advance. Well, no. For God to know it in advance, it's certain. So whatever freedom of choice you think you preserved is really a, a mind game that you're pray, playing for what God knows is going to be so. But even more importantly, that's not what the Bible intends to say when it says whom God foreknew, he predestined. You see, when the Bible talks about God knowing 
It's talking about more than just God having all the facts. Because the truth is, God has all of the facts. In that sense, God foreknows everyone equally. He knows absolutely everything 100% about every, everyone. But this foreknowing has something to do more than just having the facts. Knowing in the Bible often has a sense of loving. You know one very common illustration right in the beginning of Genesis, we read that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. <laughs> Adam didn't just have facts about his wife and that's how she got pregnant and had a son. He loved her. And so when God calls Jeremiah, you find something more than just knowing. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I know, knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God is not just saying he had information about Jeremiah in advance. God is saying he set his affection on him, set him apart by his love for him. And I think that's what the Bible means when it says, whom God foreknew, he predestined. It's saying, those upon whom God set his affection, those are the ones he chose. That's exactly what the New Testament says in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. It says, in love, he predestined us. And that's what our text is saying here. God loved us. Therefore, he chose us to be his own. Oh, you who struggle with your unworthiness this morning, I have good news and bad news. The bad news first. You think you're unworthy? You're right. You really are. <laughs> Neither you, nor I, nor Jacob deserve anything of the love of God. We are deceitful, wayward, not fit to be called the children of, of God. God doesn't love based on our worthiness. God has not chosen the beautiful people to be his own, the rich, the powerful, the influential, the wise, those who can offer him something. Rather, God has chosen people like us who really are nothing. People who, who, who he has made to be something in spite of ourselves, in order that all the glory and all the praise might be his. And here we see the love of God displayed. Not love like the world knows love, always calculating and manipulative, but love as God loves, pure grace lavished on those who are nothing and chooses them to be his own and make them something. God loved us when we did not deserve it and chose us for his own. Oh, but that love didn't end there before the beginning of time in the decrees of God. It goes on to today, and that brings us to our second point that we learn here. That God destroys his enemies, but God restores his loved ones. We know God's love for us because he destroys his enemies, but he's preserved and restored us. You know, we see things most clearly when we see them in contrast or against a contrasting uh, backdrop. If you've ever seen a, a, a mime do his uh, act, very often his face will be painted white and his hands will have white gloves and everything else will be black. 
in a black backdrop where all you see is the hands and the face and there you see the contrast of every little movement and every little nuance that gives meaning to his act where there's no words, there's only action. Contrast. Well, God is a, God works in contrast too. And that's what's happening in our text. God is working in contrast here. He's showing the magnitude of his undeserved love by explaining in contrast how he normally deals with sinners like us. You can see how much I love you, he says, when you look at how I deal with other people just like you. Other rebellious sinners. God destroys his enemies. And yet in love he has restored us. God chose Jacob over Esau 1,500 years before Malachi's time. But a lot had happened since. Immediately there was hostility between these two brothers. They hated each other and they fought most of their lives. But it didn't end with them. Their descendants kept the battle going. The descendants of, of Jacob, which was the nation of Israel, and the descendants of Esau, which was the nation of Edom. We've been studying about this on Sunday night and looking at the prophecy of Obadiah. It's all about Edom. When Israel came out of Egypt years later, uh, you may recall it was the Edomites when they said, we just want to pass through your land. We'll just stay on the road. We won't do a thing. The Edomites said, said no way. You're not allowed here. Can't even walk through. Can't even come down the road. Such animosity. Such hatred. Later, the Edomites sided with the Assyrians against Israel in 736 B.C. And then in 586, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, here are the Edomites saying, Go! Go! Get them! Get them! Get them! And then coming down and plundering the city. Great hatred of Israel by the descendants of Esau. But God's word does not just come to nothing. His loving election was not just a passing whim. God had promised to bless his people. He had promised to bless those who blessed his people and curse those who cursed his people. And through Obadiah, as we saw, God promised to do just that in regard to Edom. The descendants of Esau who set themselves against God's people. And so that's what God did, and that's what Malachi is referring to here. Though Edom rejoiced at Israel's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, about five years later the Babylonians were destroying the Edomites too. And while Israel was returned to her, to her land, restored by the Lord, the Edomites were caught in the middle of conflicts between Persia and Egypt and were repeatedly oppressed. And closer to Malachi's time, when Israel was regaining some little sense of normalcy, the Nabataean Arabs moved into Edom and displaced the Edomites. It's against that backdrop of the progressive decline of this sister nation, the descendants of Esau, that God declares his continuing love of his people, the descendants of Jacob. Look at verse 3. Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. You see the weight of God's covenant love here? His people were not perfect. His people had been so wavered, he had caused them to be overrun and taken into captivity for 70 years. 
They were no better than the Edomites. And yet God restored his people. And he brought them to repentance and he, and he turned their heart back to himself and he returned them to their land and he enabled them to rebuild their temple and to worship him again. But meanwhile, the Edomites, he destroyed. He turned their country into a continuing wasteland. And this is the love that God continues to show to his people. I would ask you, how are you so different from the world? Have you never sinned like the world has sinned? Are, are you not as bad as your non-Christian friends? D do you not deserve God's wrath? Others do, but you don't. Would God not be praised for his justice if he condemned you just like everybody else? Why, why of course he would. We are no better. We are no more righteous. We are no less sinful. You and I fully deserve God's judgment. So how is it that you sit here this morning? Basking in the love of God. Restored. Forgiven. Singing praise to the God who made you, who saved you. While others just like you are just going down the tubes further and further every day. How do you explain that? Oh, do you wonder if God loves you? Are you one who says with the people in Malachi's day, how have you loved us? Well, consider how far God's brought you. In contrast to what you deserve, in contrast to what others just like you have suffered, think of your sins and think of the consequences that others have suffered for those sins, and here you sit, forgiven. How can it be? God destroys his enemies, but he restores his own, and therein the love of God is displayed. Oh, but God's not finished. Well, we might say, well, the difference is that Israel worked harder than Edom. Or we might reason that the difference is that we continue in the faith more diligently than others do. No, I don't think so. Look at verse 4. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Verse 4, God makes it clear that no matter how hard Edom tried to reform, no matter how hard they tried to rebuild, they were not going to be successful they could not remove the wrath of God from them. And history has proven that fact in regard to Edom. Edom did try to rebuild sometime in about the 4th century, probably B.C. Uh, the city of Petra was built. It was an impregnable city built, carved out of rock. We saw pictures of it last Sunday night. Today, it's just a tourist attraction. Nobody lives there. Just like God said, they may rebuild 
but I will demolish. When the Romans came and conquered Israel in 70 AD, they also took over the Edomites. And the Edomites disappeared from history in 70 AD. Today, their land is just a wasteland part of uh, southern Jordan. Ah, but the people of God have been preserved. The Messiah Jesus was born just like God promised. In him the kingdom has begun through, though, though many of his people rejected him, when they crucified him, God raised him from the dead and, and sent his followers out to the whole world with the gospel of, of grace. Now many more have been called to follow him, people from every nation and race and culture, people loved, chosen, and kept by God to this very day, people like you and people like me. And verse 5 says all of this is reason for praise. It's reason to sing, great is the Lord, not just in ancient Israel, but throughout the whole world beyond the scope of that ancient land. You see, we may be, doubted, be tempted to doubt God's love, to feel in the midst of his chastening that, that he was against us, but this morning we need to, re, re, to reconsider the destruction of Esau. If God were against us, we would be totally destroyed. But God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He's restored our souls. He's leading us in the ways of pa uh, the paths of righteousness. He's forgiving our sins through Jesus. He's bringing us like sons and daughters into glory. When we deserve to be destroyed with his enemies, instead God loved us and restored us as his own. This morning I set before you the magnitude of the unfathomable, sovereign, gracious love of God. He loves us in that he, for no reason in us, has chosen us to be his own. And he loves us in that he has continued to care for us while he destroys others just like us. But as I announce to you the great love of God, I also warn you not to spurn that love. The people of Malachi's day, much like people in our own day, had become complacent in God's love. Indeed, the whole passage here, according to verse 1, is an oracle, a burden, an ominous word from the Lord, summoning his people to give an account, as we'll see in the weeks come. But he begins with the fact, the evidence that he's loved them. He'll go on to examine how they've spurned his love. So we need to hear the tenderness and the intimacy of God who speaks to his beloved people, but we also need to hear the passion of a jealous God who is worthy to claim his right to our affection. We stand before him by his loving grace, but we dare not spurn that loving grace, violating his word, presuming upon his grace. And so by beginning to remind us of his love, God does two things. He encourages you who are faltering, holding out to you his restoration, reaffirming his love to you. But he also warns those who are wayward not to turn away, for our only hope is his gracious love that we have in Jesus. Come to me, he says. I love you. I've restored you. I've called you my own. 
Don't spurn that love. Delight in it. Walk with me. Enjoy fellowship with me. You are my people, my treasured possession. Don't you dare trample on that love. Amen. Thank you, dear Father, that you've loved us. We can't come up with words enough to describe that. Lord, your spirit has to break through all of the reasons why we know that you shouldn't love us to cause us to feel the weight of that truth. Thank you, Lord, that you've restored our souls when we didn't deserve it, when we deserved exactly the opposite, and when we deserved what a lot of other people got. Nonetheless, you somehow have restored our souls and led us forward in the paths of righteousness and called us your own. Oh, Lord, may we bask in the delight of being loved by you. May we never be presumptuous. May it be a humbling truth every day. It causes us to walk more closely, uh, not more irresponsibly. In Jesus' name we pray.